On this week's episode of Read, Watch, or DNF, we take a sobering flight with World War II veteran Louis Zamperini and crash land into an ocean of despair and torture as he tries to survive the horrors of Japanese POW camps in Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption, and its 2014 Cliff Notes of a Screen Adaptation directed by Angelina Jolie. Also, we're tired of these motherfucking sharks. It's the number one reason I don't go into the ocean. <laughs> the number one. Content warning. Uh, this episode, we're talking about a lot. It's it's a heavy-duty episode, but really we should be talking about some war crimes, torture, or even some animal abuse in there. A lot of PTSD. So basically all the nasty side effects of war. Welcome back, everyone. Mel B. and Jackie D. here with yet another American War adaptation for the month of July. Happy 4th to all of our American listeners, and thank you to all of our world listeners to tuning in to another episode. If this is your first time with us, welcome and thank you for giving us some of your time. If you haven't already, please check us out on social medias, Twitter and Instagram, and of course, we're back on TikTok at ReadWatchDNF. Also, if you... Feel it in your heart. Maybe give us five stars. We appreciate it. We have a pretty intense episode this week. The story we're about to dive into is quite frankly unbelievable, yet somehow completely true. So settle in and prepare to be awed, shocked, and dismayed. One more thing. We're starting something new. Many of you probably noticed that our episodes are kind of long. We know, and we are uh, hashtag sorry, not sorry. But that's because there's sometimes just so much to say. And believe it or not, we don't get to include all of those thoughts in our episodes. So stay tuned because at the end of this episode, uh, check out the first installment of our new series, DNF Soapbox, where we touch back on some of our previous episodes and rant a little more. This week, our F-bombs, we're going to dedicate those to all of our military brothers and sisters, American and foreign, who may be suffering from PTSD. It's a real horror, and we want you to get help. For our American listeners, if you are suffering in silence with PTSD, please consider texting 838-255. That's the Veterans Crisis Line. Again, text 838-255. This is not sponsored or anything. It's just... a uh, a resource that we found. I also believe that on a previous episode, we mentioned the crisis hotline, which is another resource that you can text as well. So that's 741-741, and that's the crisis hotline. All right. Uh, <laughs> this episode calls for a lot of alcohol. So Jackie, what are we drinking? Uh, we are drinking sake. Sake. And why are we yes. drinking uh, because that was one of the little forms of rebellion that the POWs had. They stole it from their captors and got super, super drunk. Of course, with the state that they were in, it probably wouldn't take much, but is one of their ways of saying F you to their captors. F you. The F the man. Mm-hmm. We got fucking wasted. Uh, yep. We went to where, Total Wine. Total Wine, beer? yep. Total Wine. And we picked up three bottles of, I don't even, we posted the bottles on social media. Good friends. Good friends. That's right. Good friends. And we had three different flavors, strawberry, peach, and plum. I am drinking plum 
And Stephen actually brought home because we're, you know, we're getting ready for 4th of July barbecues, parties and all that. He brought home a case of Jurassic World limited edition dark berry Dr. Pepper. So I went ahead and uh, splashed some of that in there. And by splash, I mean, I essentially dumped the whole can into <laughs> my, my cup where Jackie poured half the bottle of 14% alcohol by volume. Saki I don't think it into was it. quite half. Uh, it was a lot. This bitch tried to get me turned. <laughs> it was a Jackie pour or a James. It was. Pour. It was. It was. It's like, hey, can I get a shot of that? Here's a full ass glass. Yeah. But yeah. So I, I'm drinking the plum sake with the dark berry Dr. Pepper because I'm a bitch. Jackie? Uh, I am drinking the peach flavored sake. Period. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Again, this week, uh, we're. We're not going to be finding a ton of drinking games and also like just not to make too light of these adaptations because they are serious. And now from here on for the rest of the month, they are um, biographical or autobiographical. So these are real. Last week was a fictional telling of a Civil War scenario, but these are all going to be nonfiction moving on forward. But in the absence of a drinking game, we'll still give you something if you feel like you need to get turned to some POW camps. All right. I think if you take a shot anytime you see a shark, you're gonna get pretty turnt. And that's enough for the whole movie, I think. You don't really yeah, need to the time do much else. Yeah, the, the time at sea is a good chunk of it and the sharks are ever present. Yeah, I think that's gonna get you a little tipsy. If you wanna keep that tipsy, um, I would say take a drink every time the bird freaks out and hits somebody. That that could keep you. Every time he's on screen. Essentially, anytime he's on screen, which is every time he's hitting someone. So, um, good luck with that. But anyway, let's talk about who read first and who watched. I read first, Mel B here. I read the paperback published in 2014 by Random House Trade Paperback Edition. Uh, the book was originally published in 2010, but this is like the, the new cover that they put out. Um, and I want to say something about this book real quick. This is the epitome of a perfect paperback because if you open it to any page, it just stays open there. It's, it's perfect and it's floppy. Without having to break the spine? Exactly. No mm -hmm. spine breakage because I don't do that. I don't break the spines. Um, I just suffer through the hard, you know, rigid books, but this is amazing and lovely and i appreciate it and then we watched on apple because i actually owned this movie on the apple I didn't even have to buy it i bought it probably years ago but had it jackie i watched first and i watched on hbo max because i subscribed to it and it was there and i read the kindle random house trade paperbacks edition as well it's just essentially the digital version of the one that mel read yep with all the pictures it was fantastic yeah. It also stayed open until I closed the app. <laughs> okay, that's right. going to be the last time we laugh. Whew, all right. And on that note, let's get into this. So I will read the synopsis or the back of the book synopsis for Unbroken. And the full title is Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. But we're, we're, from here on out, we're just going to refer to it as unbroken. So 
on the back it says the oh also it has this really great um dedication that she put and i wanted to to put it out there at the top so it's it says for the wounded and the lost so that is who this book is dedicated to i thought that was nice mm-hmm. okay so in boyhood Louis Samperini was an incorrigible delinquent. As a teenager, he channeled his defiance into running, discovering a prodigious talent that carried him to the Berlin Olympics. But when World War II began, the athlete became an airman, embarking on a journey that led to a doomed flight on a May afternoon in 1943, when his Army Air Force's bomber crashed into the Pacific Ocean against all odds, Samperini survived, adrift on a foundering life raft. Ahead of Zamperini lay thousands of miles of open ocean, leaping sharks, thirst and starvation, enemy aircraft, and beyond a trial even greater. Driven to the limits of endurance, Zamperini would answer desperation with ingenuity, suffering from hope, resolve, and humor, brutality with rebellion. His fate, whether triumph or tragedy, would be suspended on the fraying wire of his will. So (laughs) this is a deep deep story uh mm-hmm. all true it, it's lauren hillen brand hillen brand we are going to get her name right she took seven years seven years laura took of researching interviewing and writing this book so this book is completely nonfiction. she's obviously created in a sort of a narrative way with sort of first person action scenes but everything in here is from uh, first-person accounts, articles, um, war documents. It, it's ton of research in here. For any of you that don't know, Laura Hillenbrand, Hillenbrand is also the author of Seabiscuit. That was her first book. And I love me some Seabiscuit. So I didn't even know that. Put those two together. So the also it says here, Unbroken is an unforgettable testament to the resilience of the human mind, body, and spirit brought vividly, vividly to life by, again, Seabiscuit author, Laura Hillenbrad. Uh, it's about 407 pages. I think Jackie and I both agreed that it's both the paperback and the Kindle, about 407-ish pages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tons of pictures in there, which is awesome. Tons of footnotes as well. There's about 80 additional pages of um, references and acknowledgments in there. So it's, it's great. So especially if you're doing like a report or anything or some sort of research project, this is a great source because she's got a ton of references in the back of the book with footnotes that correspond. Uh, some interesting facts about this book. It was on the New York best New York Times bestseller list and remained on the list for a consecutive 160 weeks. Wow. That's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, the book has sold about well over 4 million copies. It's won a bunch of awards, too. In 2010, it won the Publishers Weekly Best 10 or Top 10 Best Books. Also in 2010, New York Times bestseller list. And again, 2010, the Time Magazine's Top 10 Nonfiction Books. It also won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, uh, Indie's Choice Book Awards for Adult Nonfiction. It won 2011 Dayton Literary Peace Prize, 2012 Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction and Nonfiction. So a ton of awards. Interesting, though, I found when I was researching this, she rewrote this book and published on Veterans Day of 2014 for a young adult version of it. Hmm. So I just I wonder if maybe it's just not as graphic and there's certain things that are so. left out. Yeah, if it's meant to be young adult. But the book itself, I mean, 
I don't think I would have an issue with any of my kids reading it. Um, but it's it. But if you do have concerns, there is a young adult version out there. If you maybe you're a little bit more sensitive to things, maybe that's more your cup of tea. But I thought that was pretty cool. So there's another version of it out there. I think it would all depend on what the child had been exposed to up to that point. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay, the movie synopsis is after a near-fatal plane crash in World War II, Olympian Louis Zamperini spends a harrowing 47 days in a raft with two fellow crewmen before he's caught by the Japanese Navy and sent to a prisoner of war camp. That is like the Cliff's Notes to the Cliff's Notes. Yeah. Version. <laughs> it was rated PG-13 for war violence, including intense sequences of brutality and for brief language. Yeah. Because, you know, the language is the tipping point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the estimated budget was about $65 million. Gross worldwide was uh, just under $161.5 million. So, yeah. Eh. yeah. I think when you're talking about war movies, uh, you're going to get a, a certain audience that are Definitely. going out to see it. And then yeah. I also think this had the stigma of Angelina Jolie directing it. So maybe people just weren't interested. Um, I think she did a great job. So, but that's my personal opinion. Yeah. I had no issues with it. Uh, there was a sequel. It was released in uh, 2018. It's called Unbroken Path to Redemption. It covers uh, Louis's recovery from uh, the abuse as a POW. So it, it goes into his reintegration and all that other stuff. So like an that actual it, movie or a documentary? Yes. No, it was a, a movie. And then there was oh. a Billy Graham documentary. Yeah. Uh, it was about 30 minutes that talks about the evangelism that he participated in. Louis evangelism. Why do I episode. feel like I remember this? Like remember trailers for this? I, I don't know. I don't know how widely it was released. I didn't really yeah. do too much uh, research on it, but it wasn't the same person playing him in the sequel. Yeah, I just remember like seeing a trailer. You know, the trailers are sort of disambiguous yeah. thing. And I just remember going, oh, that sounds like the Unbroken story and then left it mm -hmm. at that. Okay, I'm going to go look at that. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I think it's good that they did that because that we're going to talk about how that's a huge part of this book and this, his story is the actual recovery so like yes him being in the pow camp is extreme it's only like a fraction of his life story let's talk about the reviews uh, i read first so i'm going to go ahead and give you the goodreads user reviews so out of about um 865,718 last time i checked it's sitting at 4.36 out of 5 which is, I think, pretty high for a nonfiction book on Goodreads. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so 4.36 out of 5. The highest percentage in over half of the ratings are 5 out of 5. So 59% 5 out of 5. 26% 4 out of 5. 9% 3 out of 5. And then 2 and 1 out of 5 are both sitting at 2%. So overall, really, really good reviews for this book. First review I have is a 5 out of 5. Um, it's a little lengthy. A lot of them were dissertation type comments for this. It, it, it's almost the length of the, the, the biography itself. Okay. Nice. So it says, Helen Brad has broken the unwritten code of Americans to downplay the wrongs of the Japanese during World War II, other than Pearl Harbor, in favor of focusing on the egregious acts of the Nazis. 
I didn't actually know that was a thing that us Americans were supposed to do. Like I didn't, I thought all of it was bad. <laughs> I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the, what we did to the Japanese, even civilians here in the United States yeah. who were American citizens, anybody of uh, Japanese descent who couldn't actively fight in the war. Yeah. They were, they were put in internment camps. Yeah. True. I just, the way they wrote it is unwritten code. I'm like, um, uh, okay. Anyway, my education in World War II history has focused on the Holocaust and the unforgivable damage we did to Japan by unleashing the atomic bomb. I appreciate all the research Hill and Brad did to bring us to the other side of the story. Like, yeah, like the whole war is atrocious. Like there's really no good that comes out. I mean, it's very nuanced. There's it definitely skirts that line of the um, morally gray because you could argue like, oh, there's a lot of things that came out of it, you know, uh, but it's that everlasting argument of like, do the ends justify the means, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Louis Zamperini is my new hero. I loved his charisma and endurance, both of which shine through in Hillenbrand's meticulous writing. I haven't been this invested in nonfiction in a long time. Even when she was talking about airplane design, I was enthralled. I can agree with that. And even though I figured Zamperini had to have survived his ordeal to give Hill and Brand an interview, I was still anxious about his survival. My favorite part of Louis' story is his journey to forgiveness and healing through his conversion to Christianity, especially his willingness to meet with the bird and offer unconditional forgiveness. How inspiring and moving his whole story, but especially his life after the war. I don't think I can pick up another book for a few days. I need to let this one settle before I delve into fiction that will feel meaningless after this. Hmm. Raving reviews. I think overall, a lot of stuff that they touched on in this, I, I agree with. Okay, three out of five. Excellent account of a true story and a celebration of undaunted courage and resilience. I have given it five stars, except the atrocity details went on and on and on made me want to reach for a razor blade or the Prozac. So unrelenting was the suffering and sadism portrayed in this book. Actually, I thought that some of it could have been edited out. It just went on and on and on. The ending with Billy Graham and the God stuff really turned me off as well. Yeah. So Louis, Louis Zamperini, um, you, you shouldn't have made that decision because you in turn made this person unhappy. Yeah. It, it, I don't even know if they're really critiquing the book at this point. Cause it's like, she's giving you an accurate account of what happened and you're saying it's too much. I can't deal with the details. And maybe the young adult version, I don't know how it is, but maybe that would be a better option for you. But then to go and critique, Oh, the God stuff, like she's giving you his, how he came to terms with the hell that he went through was to turn to Christianity. And that seems to be a problem. So, I mean, again, I think this skirts the line. Is this a critique on the book or is this a critique on your personal feelings towards the facts that were given out to you? Because this is, again, it's not fiction. So these are facts. (laughs) I think think this person would be one of those that would have to watch the movie instead of read the book because... Yeah that that god stuff at the end it was definitely downplayed all it says at the end when they're showing the um little lines saying that yeah. this is what happened after the fact was uh he kept his promise to devote his life to god or something but yeah. it doesn't go into any more detail other than that and 
I, I will give them that there was a lot more torture and brutality in the book than there was in the movie. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So I think this is just I, not a bad review. Just I think they realized that this wasn't for them, but instead mm-hmm. they're kind of taking that self-reflection out on the book, which, you know, whatever. One out of five. And this is actually the shortest one I can find. Again, remember, it's only about 2% of the ratings and even very, very, very uh little actual written reviews, but they were so long. This was the shortest one I could find because I hated this book. Don't know what the members of my book club were thinking when they chose it for us to read. Unless you are a diehard war buff, you will not enjoy this book. Hillenbrand clearly researched the story well and has included excruciating detail and a lot of facts. But despite this, the characters come off as flat and one dimensional. It's like a history textbook. I disagree, but whatever. Yes, it's remarkable that he survived the plane crash and PW camps, and his positive outlook is probably largely responsible. But the story wasn't written in a way that was interesting. Way, way, way too much detail about the war experiences. Isn't that the whole point? I know, I know. I finally started skimming past most of it. For someone who doesn't like war movies or war stories, this bark. This book was hard to like. Frankly, if we weren't going to be discussing this book at our book club meeting next month, I wouldn't have finished it. So it's just not their style. I mean, I give them credit, though. They finished it. They uh, they devoted their, uh, they felt obligated to this book club, and they, they went through with it. So I give them credit for that. Good for you. I think overall they missed the point of the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> way too much about the war experience. It's like, Hey, bitch, that's the, that's, it literally says in the title, a World War II story. I don't know what else you thought you're getting, but okay. It's not their cup of tea. Moving on. Okay. Yeah. Movie reviews, IMDb user reviews, uh, overall average of 7.2 out of 10. And that is coming from just under 166,000 reviews. Uh, the highest percentage we're looking at a 7 out of 10, and that was at 30.5. Uh, 10 out of 10 was a 9.8, and uh, 1 out of 10 was at a lowly 1%. Uh, there were some pretty succinct reviews, so I was pretty happy about that. But the 10 out of 10 that I'm going with is titled The Best Film of the Decade. Not just the year, the decade. Yeah. Get it. This is the single most inspiring film I have ever seen. The acting is flawless and the emotional roller coaster ride, even knowing the story, is heart-stopping at times. There are no punches pulled about what this man and so many others who did not survive endured in prison camps. I I would kind of disagree with that because after having read the book, punches were definitely pulled to make the movie. Mm. Mm -hmm. It is a testament to human spirit and endurance. They say Angela Jolie. um, Angelina Jolie. (laughs) Angela. Yeah. Has made a place for herself in movie greatness. You owe it to yourself to see this film. The cinematography is wonderful and captures the emotion of the film. The acting is amazing. The directing is masterful. The story is a true one. The hero is inspirational. There is nothing and no emotion that this film fails to address. If you want to see uh, the things the human mind, body, and soul can overcome, then watch this film. You will be awed and inspired. The lessons in this movie will make you a better person. 
So, yeah. So well thought out review. So I went with a 7 out of 10 review and then a 1 out of 10 review. And I'm going to tell you right now that my search through those two categories was difficult mm-hmm. because I had to get up and walk away a couple times uh, because the in general, the lower reviews just made me angry. But we're trying to be impartial. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> this 7 out of 10 titled First Half Superb, Last Half Not. Unbroken opens with an extended sequence of a bombing run by a a U.S. B-17 crew against Japanese targets in the Pacific. That was incorrect. Uh, It's a B-24. Yeah. And the subsequent attack on the bomber by a squad of Japanese Zero fighters. This aerial combat sequence is one of the most harrowing of its kind I have ever seen. You actually feel like you're in that plane experiencing that terror and exhilaration firsthand. This segment cannot be overpraised. It is that good. Another sequence in a bomber where the plane experiences massive engine failure and crashes into the sea with the crew all on board is also very well done. The flashback segments on Zamperini's running career are also fine. The extended sequence depicting three airmen's time on a life raft floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is well done. So far, it's all good. Then we get to the meat of the film, the prisoner of war scenes. And the film becomes a ponderous slog through torture and brutal beatings of the main character by an effeminate and sadistic Japanese captor. This is essentially the entire second half of the film, and it becomes monotonous and numbing. The photography, sound, and music in this film were all award caliber, and Jolie shows great promise as a mainstream director. Mm. So they thought that the uh, torture stuff was boring? Yeah. Okay, sure. I mean, I personally thought, and we're going to get into that, that it doesn't really do it justice for what actually happened. So if that was boring or too much, then anyway. Yeah. Okay. And then the final review I found was a one out of 10. I happened to stumble upon this one way, way, way down on one of the pages when I was searching and I was just about to call it quits on the one out of 10 reviews uh, until I found this one. And then I found another one that was similar to this, but I chose this one over that one. It says, Jolie was running her own race. <laughs> I read the book and laughed and cried with these men. And Angelina Jolie raced through this like she had a checklist. I could hear her yelling, okay, next scene. Uh, the parts that were touching were overlooked and the parts that made you care were skipped over. The rescue from the raft skipped entirely and was tantamount to explaining their survival. Mm -hmm. This movie left me feeling empty, wondering if anyone involved actually read the life-changing book from whence it was born. Characters you should hate and have nightmares about left you feeling nothing. These were real men. Heroes. The team that did Band of Brothers could have made this into something that changed history of cinema. Instead, we got a hollow outline that left me tired and a little bored. What a waste. Read the book instead. I love movies and hate those who always claim the book is better, but in this case, no truer words were ever spoken. And that was one of the only satisfactory one out of 10 reviews I found. Uh, The rest of them, just, I I told Mel this earlier, just maybe wanted to want to punch people because most of the others were complaining about the movie that the movie was either too brutal or not realistic. And I think also a lot of people that were given it negative reviews are just projecting their own personal views or prejudices of, 
you know, American history or mm -hmm. war history, military history, um, which I think when you're discussing the history of war, any war, irrespective of the reason, the country, I mean, it's, it's all bad. There's none of it that's good, mm -hmm. but you need to see essentially like the opposite, like the trees through the forest per se, because these are human beings, you know, that did not really choose to be there in the sense where they woke up one morning and thought, I would really like to go into battle today. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I would really like to experience a POW camp. None of them are waking up thinking that. So these are humans. So I think you need to look at a story like this and not think about the government at the time, the policies, the big picture, you know, uh, <sighs> like the, just the much bigger picture that you have to think at this point, like, what is this person's story irrespective of how, what your personal feelings are about the situation? You know, like we look at the Holocaust and go, the Holocaust was absolutely atrocious. But when you start to break it down by individual experiences, like you're, you're getting so much more from it. Um, it what, I think it was Stalin that said that, where he's like one or two deaths is a tragedy. Like a, a thousand is a statistic, right? Yeah. So when you said, I don't to, know if it was him, but yeah, I know what you're talking I about. Yeah. I think it was Stalin that said that. And I don't, I don't know if the numbers are correct in that statement, but essentially it's like, you know, if you're talking about one person and their life and their story and their death, that's a tragedy or whatever happened to them. But when you look at the bigger picture, then all of a sudden it just becomes monotonous statistical type information. So mm -hmm. what we're trying to do here is show the individual story. All right, let's talk about the characters of this. So because the movie really is sort of like a Cliff Notes version of the book, we're going to have much fewer characters uh, or main characters, we should say major characters in the movie than the book. So the book, of course, you have Louis Zamperini. So he's Olympic middle distance runner from 1936 Olympics who becomes the POW in World War II. So he is the main, this is who the story is about. Then we have Pete Samperini, who is Lewis, uh, Lewis's older brother. Um, he really looks up to him. He's actually got him into the running, et cetera. Then we have Louisa Samperini. That's his mother. Um, we have the rest of his family, Anthony being his father, Sylvia and Virginia being his sisters. Then we have some characters that were left out of the movie altogether, one of them being James Kunichi Sasaki, uh, who is this really sort of crazy character because uh, Louis meets him in USC when he was in college. Um, we find out later that he really wasn't a student there. He may have been a Japanese spy who was trying to raise money and resources for the war effort before it even started. So this is in the 30s. Then we see him later in the camps and he's saying he's an interrogator. But then there's another story where maybe he's just interpreted. Like, you really just don't know who this person is, even towards the end. He's just... Was he a, a double agent? Was he actually a war criminal? Was he a spy? Like, you just don't know. And it's, I understand why they left him out, because I think it just would have taken too long to really try and put forward what who this character was. But and we say character because it's reference, but these are actual people. This is a real human being. James Kunichi Sasaki, very, very interesting and strange uh, person. Then we have Russell Allen Phillips, or Lieutenant um, Phillips, or... Alan has his family calls him Phil as uh, Louie and the rest of his crew calls him. He is uh, the pilot 
he was with Louis for a long time, a couple of years during their training and during missions. He was the pilot of the Green Hornet when it crashed. He was one of the survivors of that wreckage with Louis um, and arguably his his best friend. There's a lot going on. They do get separated, uh, but Louis always keeping him in his mind. And then we kind of meet back up later on. We have Francis McNamara, who is, you know, Mac. He is the third survivor of the Green Hornet, the Green Hornet cat crash i should say um he was ultimately buried at sea he did not survive the stranding in the ocean he did not survive uh that's max so he has a burial at sea we put in gaga gaga was also left out from the movie and i think i might i'm glad but also sad gaga was a duck at the ofuna pow's uh camp he was killed by the guards as punishment to the POWs. It's just a story of this animal that was also sort of injured and the POWs. uh, They They made a little splint for his leg. Yeah. He, I think he kept their spirits up, you know, something to distract them. This is little duck. It really was just a great, great story. It ends horribly, um, maliciously, disgustingly, uh, I had to sort of put the book down for a minute and walk away. I almost started crying. But Gaga is part of the book. Then we have The Quack. Nothing to do with Gaga. But The Quack is one of the medical people at the POW camps. Maybe he was a doctor. I don't know. Um, but he was absolutely awful. He beat so many of the POWs. Bill Harris being one of those. Um, who's another character we're going to talk about in a second. Or person, I should say. We call them characters. We're talking figures in the book, but they are real people. Um, and the quack, I believe, was brought up on war criminal charges and sentenced later after everything was said and done. Then we have William Harris or Bill. He is one of the first people Louis meets at Ofuna, um, and he has a photographic memory and speaks a ton of different languages. So he's able to uh, communicate with the, the guards and translate during this time. Uh, but he has a terrible time as well. Then we have Muts, Mutsuhiro Watanabe. Watanabe? Watanabe? Yeah. Watanabe? Uh, Watanabe. That's what it is. Um, he's also known as the bird. He is the villain in this story. The absolute villain. He is a sadistic guard. He has a long story about... It comes from a very wealthy family. He is a spoiled little prick. He wanted to be an officer. Thought he was going to be an officer. Comes out as a corporal. He's just absolutely despicable and he takes this all out on the POWs. He is essentially like the foreman or something or overseer for the POWs in the camps. He's in charge of discipline. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Discipline for them. Um, So he's not, he's not the highest ranking person in the POW camp. There's a camp commander. There's all these other officers, but he's so fucking crazy that even the officers are like, oh, just do whatever you want. Like, we don't yeah, want to deal with you. Yeah, everybody capitulates to him. Just yeah. Like, oh. Dis- disgusting. This is a person that essentially just ruins Zamperini's life. Then at the end of the book, we are introduced to Cynthia Applewhite Zamperini. That is Lewis's wife. They meet in Miami on his uh, R&R. The end of the movie is sort of disingenuous because it says, oh, Louis... Uh, married his sweetheart Cynthia like as if this woman was waiting at home for him you know he no he met her after this is all said and done 
she was like 19 years old at Miami. She was like a wild child, comes from a really rich family. They they connected because they're sort of kindred spirits. You know, he's a wild kid. She's a wild kid, you know, free spirits. Um, but I don't think she realized what she was signing up for when she committed to Louis. It's, that's where you get into the part of the book where he's a, a wreck with the PTSD. Well, even before they got married, uh, it says something in the book about how uh, after he went back to California, they were engaged. Uh, they started to realize how little they knew each other. Yeah. But he was just obsessed with her. Like that was something. To, and I think it had a lot to do with his PTSD and what he was coping with um, that. He just, he couldn't cope with, losing her so they sort of rushed into things um their story progresses you know they they find the christianity then billy graham comes into it their marriage is essentially saved and and they go in front but it's rough it's not a healthy relationship by any means so when you see that at the end of the movie when it's like oh he married his sweetheart just remember it was messy okay real messy and then of course billy graham at the end he is an evangel uh, evangelist who goes on this um, evangelical tour, you know, doing the things in the tents, like, you know, praise the revivals. Jesus, all that. The revivals. Uh, and Louis, uh, Cynthia actually essentially forces Louis to go to one of these and is like, you have to come. And he's like miserable, sit in the back. He doesn't want to go more than like a pew in so he can just run out after it. But it, it, it touches him. him. Yeah. 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 She tricked You're him. like, oh, he, he talks about science. He's like, fine, fine, whatever. Um, but I think he goes because Cynthia goes without him and comes back and she's wanting to divorce him. She was right. They were trying to get, she was trying to divorce him. And she comes out back after seeing one of these and is like, I don't want to send, we can make this work, but you have to come see it. So he's like, uh, fine. Um, but Billy, he speaks to him, you know, something about that. And I don't care what your feelings are about religion, Christianity, whatever. Everyone has to have something, something in this world that, worth living for right and this is a time in louis's life where he i think didn't know what that was and, and this offered him something so there and that is the book there's tons of other character people i should say um but these are these are the major ones that play a big role yeah, in the movie um i have a few listed but i'm going to say that louis phil Fitzgerald, Mac, and Watanabe are going to be the main ones that you see the most of. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you see his parents, Anthony and Louise, a little bit, Pete a little bit, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit more even than than the parents. But the the big ones are going to be Louis, Phil, Fitzgerald, uh, Mac, and Watanabe. Yeah, I agree with that. So as Louis, we have Jack O'Connell. Uh, I hadn't really seen him in much before I saw this and then I was going through some of his previous work and I saw that he was in Godless. Uh, I saw you write that. I was like, Oh my that. God, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So good. And then the big one that the entire time I was watching it, I was looking at him thinking, where have I seen him? Right. Phil, yeah. played by Domhnall Gleeson is in the new star Wars movies. Oh, that's right. Yes. 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 He's the like bad guy, but not bad guy. Yeah. Right. And not in like the, I, just because I'm bad guy does not mean I'm bad guy kind of way. It's like. Yeah, no, he's, he's actually yeah. not a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, no, really, I am, I am not bad guy. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, uh, Fitzgerald, who he meets in the POW camp, is played by Garrett Hedlund, and I'm going to be totally honest with you, the only thing I've ever seen him in is, uh, what is it, Country Strong, when oh yeah, yeah Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow plays the boozed-up and pill-popping queen of country. Yep. Um, but he was also in like Friday Night Lights. He was in Troy. He was remember, um, what's his Achilles? Uh, little oh, cousin oh or something? yeah. That, that's what he was. Start with a P. Then, yeah, I forget it. Mm. I forget it now. But yeah, Whatever. he was yeah. also an Aragon. <laughs> yeah, I know. I saw that in the listing, but I'd never seen it, and I hope to keep it that way. Sorry, Aaron. Um. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I I just chose not to list that. Oh, he's in that movie Four Brothers with like Mark Wahlberg. That was that was pretty good. He's just very attractive to me. So he is. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Uh, Watanabe is played by a chap called Miyavi, uh, but mm-hmm. he's listed on the credits as uh, Takamasa Ishihara. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Miyavi is his stage name. Yeah, he's a musician. Okay. He's also very, um, I don't think, okay, I'm not, I don't think I'm really attracted to this, like, K-pop thing going on, like, these guys that mm-hmm. kind of look like women. I mean, no offense, I mean, whatever. But there's something about him that I find oddly satisfying. I think he's really kind of quirky. He gives mm-hmm. off, like, these, like, Bill Skarsgård type. Steve Buscemi chap vibes. Not that he's he doesn't have like a lazy eye or anything, but there's just something about it that I'm like, I like it. He's he's a strange looking cat, but okay. Anyway, <laughs> I was a little too deep uh, into <laughs> to me right there. Oh well, uh, Mac. We have Finn Whitrock, which yes. I went through his cast list and didn't see anything that I recognized. Well, American Story uh, or Horror Story. Horror story. He's, okay. He is awesome in some of those seasons. Um, he also broke off to the Ratchet that he did. It was like a not a spinoff, but kind of. He's he plays a really good sicko. I will take your word for it. Yeah, he's yeah he's, he's good. Uh, and then I think one of the most recognizable people in this movie, Cup or Cuppernell, is played by Jai Courtney. He was in Suicide Squad, Terminator Genesis, Divergent, and oh, he yeah. played Baby McLean in uh, one of the Die Hard movies. He played John McLean's uh, yes, son. Yes, he did. A good day yep, to yep, Die yep. Hard. Yep. Yeah, he's been in a lot. He's also a good-looking chap. Yes, Australian. Yeah, like I like him. him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, we also have uh, Louisa or Louisa um, Madalena Ischiali. Wow, okay. Yeah, and Anthony is played by Vincenzo Amato. And mm, yeah, that's very that's Italian. It, yeah. yeah. There's, there, there's a whole long list of all the other POWs and stuff like that, and then it goes into, uh, like, Omari Guard 1, Omari Guard 2. but Yeah, it's like, we, we're good. We're good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's... Uh, we've made a few references already that the movie is essentially the cliff notes of the book. 
because the book takes you through his essentially his entire life, right? His childhood up until his um, mid to late thirties. And then we kind of peek back at the end uh, right before his, well, he, he, Louis Zamperini died in, in 2014. This book was published in 2010. So he hadn't, he hadn't passed away yet, but we're towards the end where he ran in the Olympics in Japan. Not that he ran. He was like the, one of the torch torch bearers. bearers. Yeah. yeah. So he was in his eighties when he did that. So we get essentially, I would say 80% of his life in this story where the book we get, you know, maybe 20, if that, and only in glimpses. There's an interesting quote that I thought was really sort of profound that I wanted to put out there before we get into this, because we're about to relive essentially his life. So when he came back to the States and everyone wanted a piece, right? They wanted to hear his story. And he said, if I knew I had to go through those experiences again, I'd kill myself. That was how he thought about having to sort of retell these stories when he when he first got back. Because eventually after, you know, his, the Christianity, he went on a lot of talking tours. He used that as sort of his motivational, faithful type speeches. Um, but at the beginning, he was like, I don't, I don't want to fucking talk about this, which mm-hmm. I respect. It was a lot. All right, let's get the beginning of the book. Um, we are introduced to Louis Zamperini as a child. And the way he's described, the best way I would say is feral. Because mm-hmm. I also have an eight-year-old son, or nine, nine years old now, who is also feral. They're just outside running around doing boy stuff. How many times we've had to go to the emergency room because he's broken an arm or split his head open on something. Yes, that is Louis Zamperini as a child. They, well, He's like five years old. He's picking up cigarettes off the ground, smoking them. He's yeah. hiding booze and shacks and drinking them when he's eight. Yeah, he's he starts crazy. drinking at eight. Yeah, he's nuts. Yeah. Crazy. In the movie, we are introduced to Louis as an adult right away. Um, he is on the B-24, and I believe that plane is the Superman, because that is a plane mm-hmm. that takes him over uh, Nauru uh, mm-hmm. for the raid, the bombing raid that they do. Um, that was like their their go-to plane. That was their plane, loved it, got through everything, but it did not survive that. It made it all the way back to their home base on... Um, I forget where that was, but like another little island to hop over. But it essentially crash lands on the uh, flight line and then doesn't sort of move after that. And then they're also raided, so the plane doesn't make it out of that. But that's who we're introduced to at first. We get a little bit of the story of him as a child, some glimpses back in the movie. Church, you know, his feet can't keep his feet still. His uh, fighting, stealing, cops bringing him home to his mother. And then we get the introduction of how Pete says, let's, let's channel this. And he starts running. So we, we are introduced to the fact that Pete is essentially his role model. And we get to the running. He wins a couple races. I like how in the movie, they, they gave you little glimpses of some of the stuff in the book where, for example, that one race where the other uh, runners sort of tear up his legs with their spikes. Oh, yeah. The NCAA championship or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of like events that are told in the book that don't get any sort of spotlight in the movie, but little things like that I thought was clever how they introduced it. Only issue I had though was 
in the movie, it makes it seem like, okay, I'm a kid, I start running, and then I'm really good in high school, and then I'm all of a sudden at the Olympics, where there's a very long path here, and there's a lot of trials and tribulations, essentially, and he goes to college, but then remember, he also tries to join the military, and he doesn't do well, so he goes back to college. Like, they left all that out. I guess for the sake of the movie, maybe it's not relevant, um, but the college is where a lot of this racing drama happens and how he gets picked up to go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. College is also where he meets uh, Sasaki. Yes. And... and so they left that out and we didn't get an yeah. opportunity to meet him either. Yeah. So he doesn't go to college. He does not finish because he does go to the Olympics and he does um, then join the military again. Uh Funny story in the book, I love this about the Olympic trials because Louis Zamperini wanted to run the 1500 meter and he started off, uh, well, how this? He didn't have that much time to perfect this. He had, like, I think, maybe a couple months, and mm-hmm. there's already a lot of runners out there that were like masters in this event. So he knew he wasn't going to um, qualify. He wasn't going to place to make the Olympic team, but somebody brought up like, Hey, what about the 5,000? Cause there's not that many people going. And then there was somebody out there. I forget who it was says like, Hey, if you can place like top seven, you'll go to the Olympics. I, I would walk away if somebody came to me with that offer. Yeah. So he was like, sure. Mm-hmm. Had never run it before. Went to New York to run it. It was so hot that year that summer when they were doing the trials that nobody could sleep. Nobody could really eat. They were all sweating and dehydrated. So they weren't really running great times, but he did well enough where he placed. Then they put him on a cruise liner to take him across the Atlantic to go to Germany for the Olympics. And this part is great for me because they're on this cruise liner, the whole U S Olympic team. Right. And I think some of Canada and stuff too were on there and they are just eating and drinking, and Louis still stealing stuff. They're just being a mess, right? <laughs> the, everyone put on like 10 pounds before they got to Germany. And now at they're least. just, they're at least. So they're all fat, sluggish, out of shape by the time they get to Germany. And now they're supposed to, to run in these Olympic events. It said some, some wrestlers or boxers ate themselves out of their weight class. Yes. Yeah. Could you imagine you're going there like that and they're like, oh, no, mm-mm, too fat. Like, <laughs> and that's not good either because if you think about it, your weight class, you're like, oh, you're just in the, the weight class up. No, no, no. You're in the weight class up because you're fat, not because you're ready to fight in that weight class because the other people in that weight class are going to fucking pummel you. <laughs> yeah. Your doughy so, body. Yeah. Doughy food boost up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get why they left that out of the movie. It just, you know, it's not relevant to the story that the movie is trying to play. But in the book, I thought this is such a great story. Um, I also thought it was interesting about the time in Berlin, how uh, Hillenbrand, uh, 
went into talk about what happened in Germany, in Berlin, specifically after the Olympics were over. They're yeah. Like, somebody essentially came out and was like, okay, you can stop hiding all the bad shit now. And mm-hmm. yeah. Swastikas everywhere. No Jews here. Signs. I mean, the Nazi up. flag was up, but. Yeah, but this was like They the said whole, shortly like... after. Yeah. Shortly after that, they started sending um, all of the, the people to the, the camps and, and stuff yeah. like that. So. Yeah, she definitely weaves in a lot of other historical facts at the context of the time, just effortlessly or seamlessly. Like, it's so good because you don't, it's a, it's like almost all the information you get from a textbook, but it doesn't read like a textbook. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. Yeah. Okay. So he, he's in the Olympics. He doesn't place, he doesn't medal in his event, but he does go down in history because he runs the fastest final lap on record to that point. And he beats it by like over 10 seconds. And I think that record stood for almost like 20 years before mm-hmm. someone else beat it. So he didn't medal, but he did come out of it. Like again, setting records and, and being known for that. So comes back home. Um, and now we're going to jump, jump into like, he gets recalled, signs of the army again, becomes a bombardier. He's a officer. He's a Lieutenant now in the army air forces. Um, he meets up with Phil and his other crew. We have like Pillsbury and some of them and they're training, training, training. And this part to me is fantastic. Uh, maybe not fantastic. I mean like just amazing this information wise, because she goes into statistics of how many planes and crewmen died during training alone. It's astounding. I think you said like 70% or something. It was appalling to me. Yeah. Uh, that's that's not a fact that I have ever read in any textbook or anything like that. Well, obviously, textbooks didn't go into this much detail, but... Yeah. I, I just... At, at what point do you have to keep having these training exercises due to malfunctions or something like that before you're like, you know what, maybe we did something wrong. We need to go fix this. Yeah, I, I mean, yes. You would think, but then you have to consider like we're, we are at war, right? Mm -hmm. This is what's happening. I think at this time, um, the Pearl Harbor attacks happen, right? So we don't have any time anymore for all this sort of trial and error type stuff and how long it took at that point to design and engineer an aircraft like that. I get it. It, I don't think it makes it right, but this is now one of those morally gray areas of war. Where it's like either we scrap everything, start from scratch and go. But also at the same time, we did have the B-17s that were out. And the B-17s with uh, the Liberator, I think is what it's called. Um, Those had much better statistics than the B-24s. But for some reason, we're like, ah, we still got the B-24s, so we're going to go with it. Anyway, Louie, he becomes a B-24 bombardier with Phil and um, some of the other crew. Uh, and they're together during a training. And then finally they get sent out to do missions. They get sent to Hawaii. Then they get sent out to, I keep forgetting what this Island was or the atoll that they went to. Um, but it's out there in the Pacific little Island. They, with their plane that they call Superman, because it said, even it defies all odds, you know, it's getting shot at like engines are dying. Fuel tanks are falling off, whatever. Um, and it's still just going strong. So that's like their baby. They do this raid on Nara, which is what you see in the movie when you open up. And then they're they're getting hit. Like, I think it had, like, 
50 something holes in it from between uh, the one chapter was titled 594 holes oh my god was it 594 mm-hmm. it's something crazy like this plane makes it back and just so you understand like it's not like go in quick they get shut up and they get a hot back roll real fast no it's like five hours that they're in the air flying back after this after they've just been peppered and I think at one point um, they can't close the bay doors where the bombs get dropped out mm-hmm. of because it got a, it got hit and it messed up the door. So the hydraulics couldn't pull the doors back into place. And this was creating drag as well, which means that it's not fuel efficient. It's not these planes weren't fuel efficient to begin with, but it's dragging. So they're losing fuel quicker. Right. And there's other things like the landing gear is all shot up i think the fuel lines at some point or the brake lines get severed because of the doors so they don't have brakes louis uh trying to find a way like hey can we hook up um parachutes to the back of this plane because they're going really fast over 100 miles an hour there's like six thousand feet of this landing landing strip that they need to end at or they're going to like crash into the ocean on the other side um they didn't have to use the parachutes they were able they skidded down kind of sideways and landed but yeah five hours in the air they realized after all the stuff we just walked talked through they had five hours of that everyone's on the edge of their seat going are we going to make it back and i think they literally like their engine died they ran out of gas and some other stuff like right as they were landing so somebody up there was looking out for them yeah, I found it. Uh, later, ground crewmen would count the holes in Superman, marking each one with chalk to be sure that they didn't count any twice. There were 594 holes. And um, that's also the event that sort of separates the crew because um, uh, I, th- I think they all survive, but a lot of them are injured very, very severely. Pillsbury was one of the... One of them didn't make it. Um... Oh, Okay. One of the stories from, I think it's one of the waste gunners, uh, or no, the 50, one of the 50 cal gunners, um, Pillsbury, they called him. He essentially gets shot up from shoulder to, 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 to ankle. His leg is just chewed up. He refuses to leave the 50 cal because he knows there's another enemy plane out there and he wants to shoot it down. Because at this point, they all agree that if they take another hit, this plane there's no way this plane is staying airborne. They're going down with it. Um, so yeah, he is like half a body sitting in there waiting for this and does shoot down the enemy plane. So Pillsbury it was, uh, saves yeah, it was Harry, plane. Harry Brooks, Tech Sergeant Harry Brooks did not yes. make it. So a lot of them were very, very injured. One of them, as I said, did not make it. And this ultimately splits up the crew because the most of them are staying in the hospital they don't have a plane anymore. So Louis and the rest of the surviving crew that are, you know, ambulatory, not in, you know, bed bound are just kind of chilling on this Island. Then what happens is they get notice that a plane, another B-24, um, they lose contact with it. They think it went down. They're trying they want to do a rescue. This is what you see in the movie too. It doesn't exact exactly happen the same way, but I don't think it really matters what the details are of that. It's just that, they get called out to do this. Now, what I don't like about the movie <clears throat> is that the Green Hornet is infamous. And it's infamous for a lot of reasons as being just not a good plane. Like it mm-hmm. should not be in the air anymore. But like we were talking about earlier, 
I think it's just desperate times call for desperate measures. The plane really doesn't, and not the plane, the movie really doesn't give it justice to let the audience know why this is so foreboding and the foreshadowing of this, of you guys have to fly the Green Hornet because the whole crew knows that this plane should not be in the air. Yeah. They know that it's been sitting on a runway and being used for spare parts. Yeah. It doesn't even have everything it should. It doesn't even have any, a payload on it because they've taken everything out. It doesn't have, I think it just has a 50 cal on it. If that, and we find out later about the way it's an older version so it has older, um, what do you call that? Uh, like the raft and the kits and everything that yeah. are not up to standard. And then because of this event, the army or the military war department, we should say, would come on and reissue like what the standard kit should be, like rescue kits. So they go up and they start looking. It's hard. They realize that <laughs> when you're that high up, going that fast, trying to look at the ocean in the middle of the day. So the sun's glaring down. And I think at this point there were clouds too that were obstructing their view mm-hmm. because they can't see anything. Even if they did fly directly over the the lost crew, they, they wouldn't have been able to see them. Then uh, the engine goes out on the Green Hornet and they start going down. Something they leave out of the movie, which again, I don't really, I don't hate that they left this out because I think it would have been confusing and sort of like too much time to have to explain this is in the book, they attribute a lot of the confusion during the crash to the fact that Phil and his co-pilot switch spots so that the co-pilot could get uh, more time in the main pilot seat for training. And if we're just out over ocean, like open water, we're not doing anything. It's fine. Let them get some practice. So when things start to go to shit, they're not in their normal positions that they're used to. So like muscle memory kicks in and it, it's not right. And then also yeah, they the reach their left hand out for some yes. kind of switch, but it's actually on their, uh, their right side, whatever. Yeah. And not saying that this is what caused them the crash. I think it was inevitable anyway. It's just that it created a lot of confusion in the cockpit when this is happening. And then the engineer, because when they're calling out for the engineer to go do stuff because they're on the wrong sides, they're calling out wrong direction. So the engineer essentially, I think like shuts off the other engine by accident. Um, Mm -hmm. So that exacerbates the situation and they go down, Um, they get into position that they've been trained for. Um, I think what Louis says is a saving here is that him and Phil, because Phil swapped seats with the co-pilot, the two of them were on the right side of the plane, which they think is what saved them because the way that it hit, it sort of tore out the left side and the bottom of the plane, which I think ultimately killed the other crew. Um, Something crazy I want to talk about real quick. And they show it in the movie as well is the engineer, this poor bastard. This is real world happening the time for them to get in position to get the kits and the rafts ready. The engineer of the plane has to go up, stand essentially in the middle holding, uh, getting ready to grip these two overhead um, levers or or poles or whatever at the last minute. So the raft comes down because he can't pull it early because the raft will literally just like inflate in the middle of the plane. Mm -hmm. And they talk about in the book how this is essentially like the martyr position because how, how can you get in any sort of position to protect yourself? Yeah. It's almost like you're, you're, you're going to die in this. So I thought mm-hmm. I was like, this is insane. But these men are like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I need to do. Like, this is, 
how I'm going to save or help the survivalist crew. So he stands there and he does it. He pulls it at the last minute. So they have this raft. So if it weren't for the engineer, they probably wouldn't have had the raft that they did. I don't know um, how they did it. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's wild. Um, but they do show that in the movie, which I thought was uh, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're we're in the water. I would say in the movie, this is, uh, I guess, the middle of the plot because there, there's a lot at the end they don't. I would say this is more like end of the first part or end of the beginning in the book because there's so much else that happens. But let's just say we're in the middle. So now they are in the ocean. It is Phil, Louis, and Mac. A big difference from the movie to the book is in the movie, you get this feeling that Mac is part of their crew. You see him on the first flight and then you see him like hanging out with them, buddy, buddy. When in reality, they he was part of the new crew because they lost most of their crew with the previous mission. They didn't know any of these people. I think it was just the pilot, co-pilot, and Louie were the only three remaining. And there's even a part in the book where it talks about how Louis, a lot of that flight on the Green Hornet, he spent in the cockpit because he didn't know the other guys. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know why they changed this because I think it would have lent itself well to explaining the dynamic in the rafts if they would have stuck to the fact that Mac was not an original part of their crew. Um, but I don't know if it really makes a difference. Like if you did do that, if it would change anything in the movie per se, but that is just something from the book. They did not know this kid and there's a lot they got to know about him on the raft. I have a theory. Okay. In the movie, they wanted to portray it like a band of brothers type relationship. Mm. Like very close knit, practically family, uh, things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I get because it. Because Band of Brothers had already come out. It, that was, what, 2001? Something like that? Yeah. Um. So it, everybody has this idea that in World War II, everybody that was in a unit together, they were practically family. They they were that close, and they didn't want to... Yeah, that's not far off if you consider that their original crew, they were that close. Mm-hmm. They were really tight. Um, so I don't, I don't hate it. Um, I, I think it does give that, like you said, that sort of band of brothers type feel to it. So I was like, nah, whatever. And also he's not like bad to look at either. So <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, this is fine. Uh, <laughs> I I think that the stranded at sea sequence um, is pretty accurate to the book. Obviously it's cut down because, you know, for sake of time in the movie, but, you know, Mac eats all the chocolate. They have the shitty kits and the raft. They're um, getting sunburned. There's sharks swimming around. Like, all of that, I think, is pretty verbatim from the book. And then the storm that they go through, the, uh, the Zero coming in and shooting at them. Uh, it's just very, what do you call it, um, abbreviated. But I think it's yeah. almost exactly the same. One thing that they cut out is... Before they get, I don't even, I wouldn't say the word rescued. I mean, technically they're being rescued from being stranded at sea. But I think Louis sums it up in the movie where he's like, hey, Phil, I got some good news and I got some bad news. <laughs> you know, where they, when the ship pulls up mm-hmm. um, and the Japanese Navy is there. They left out the part where they see the island. 
Yeah. And they're about to like get to the island, but the storm happens and kind of That was one of the most heart wrenching parts of the book early on for me because they're so close, so freaking Mm -hmm. close and nature gets in the way. Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh, I didn't know this. I didn't know they had an island, but then they don't get there. And this Mm -hmm. is after Mac has already passed away. And a difference in the movie from the book, though, is in the movie, Mac says, am I am I dying or am I going to die tonight? That's something like that. And then Louis replies with maybe. But in the book, he says, you know, I wasn't going to disrespect a dying man by lying to him. So when he says, am I dying? Louis says, yes, I think tonight. Mm -hmm. And that was weird that they changed that in the movie because I thought that was really profound in the book. Not to say it's like fictional or made up, but this is Louis and Phil's how they remember the situation. And his reasoning was, I don't want to disrespect a dying man by lying to him. So I wonder why they changed that in the movie. I The only thing I can think of is, uh, I don't know, thinking about the way audiences would be. and Yeah, like maybe yeah, it's I, just too crass. Like, you're yeah, am I it, dying? Yeah. Telling him, telling him maybe or lying to him is a lot more sympathetic than being like, yeah, you're going to die. <sighs> I know. Like, is that an issue with our society? Because... <sighs> Do we think, is it comforting for them or is it comforting for us? If somebody is literally on their last breath, right? And we're like, no, no, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it through. Like, does that help them? Or does no, that? No, it doesn't. No. Right? Okay. I, I I think so too. Like, I think that if, if I am in my last moments, I don't want to be left with, oh, wait, wait, maybe not. Maybe not thinking that. I'd rather just be like, let me come to terms with it in the short time that I do and be at peace. Or maybe mm-hmm. they just think people will be frantic. If you're like, yeah, you're going to die and get stressed out. I think there's both sides to the argument, but I also think, um, or not. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if this is accurate. So if it's not, don't come for us, but especially if you're in the medical field, but I feel like I've heard this before where in medical training for doctors and nurses, They are trained to use certain language and certain wording when talking about, you know, the the act of dying, if somebody has died, et cetera, et cetera, how to talk to the family. But specifically, it's like how they deal with patients that are either in hospice or in such a critical traumatic case where they, I believe they're trained that you do not lie to the patient. Is that part of the Hippocratic Oath where... If somebody's like, am I dying as a medical professional? If you know that this is the case, that they are trained to give them the truth. Let me call I don't know if I'm sure she knows. I know. Yeah. I I might look this up, but I would be, I would be curious to know what that is. I feel like I've read it before, um, but I'd also want to know then what is the reasoning for that? Um, I feel like it has to do something with legal, (laughs) but I would assume it's also based on like, there's gotta be something behind it. Right. If that, if that is the case. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So they just change that. I, I, I guess for cinematic purposes, maybe it doesn't really make a difference, but I just, when I heard the maybe, cause I, I, I read first and watched second, I was like, Oh no, I don't know why it affected me. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. Um, so the Japanese ship picks them up something that I actually really did hate that they didn't put this into the movie though. 
is that when they get picked up on the ship, at first it's very, you know, uh, contentious and, and volatile, like, ah, who are you? Whatever. But they're treated pretty well on the ship. Yeah, when they're the given decent food and, yeah. and talk to, not... And well, you could the, tell... Yeah, the enlisted personnel immediately start beating them up, but then an officer comes out and said, hey, stop. Yeah. And I think you could tell that really what we're seeing here is a difference that this ship is commanded by an officer that adheres to the Geneva Convention, where I have rescued um, an enemy combatant, but I am you know, doing no further harm. And they have this part in the book that Louis and Phil recount that when they're dropped off to go to this other place, the officers tell them, we can't guarantee how you're going to be treated here. Well, even in the book, uh, she talks about how the POW guards, um, the the guys at the actual camps, they were like the dregs of the Japanese military. Right. You know, like low, they, very low ranking, yeah. dumb, yeah, sadistic, that this is why they're not officers. Mm-hmm. But at that point, you know, Japan, they talk about this later, too, when they talk when they go into some of these towns where they're like, there are no young men. They are mm-hmm. all in the military. You either have super old people or kids um, or yeah. women. So it, everyone's in the military. I think they weren't turning people away, which maybe goes to the reasoning why the bird wasn't an officer. They probably looked at him and go, fuck no, mm-hmm. you are absolutely insane, but you still need to be in the military because we're at war. So here's a corporal, right? Uh, yeah. So why I hate that they didn't show this in the movie is because I like having a story that has all of the sides. And yes, the Japanese were brutal during World War II. Any World War II veteran that served in the Pacific will tell you that this is just horrific, right? Hacksaw Ridge, another one. They have a lot of the parts where the soldiers are talking about, like, they just fucking keep coming. Like, they want to die. You know, like, they. and in the book, it describes really well how before the war even comes, like, Japan has been prepping for this for generations. This is not something that just overnight, oh, Hitler wants to take over the world, we're, we're down. No, Japan has been prepping for this for generations and they are breeding and raising children and indoctrinating them into the system of like brutality. So this is, this is why you get what you get from the Japanese at that time. That is Mm -hmm. not the case anymore. Uh, Jackie and I have actually traveled to Japan. We spent some time there for work trips and Japan right now, beautiful country. They are probably the nicest people we've ever come across Loved it. The memorials that they have for World War II there are absolutely beautiful and stunning. There's a lot of care that went into them. So it's a, it's a new Japan that you're looking at from where they were in World War II because they were bred up until that point to be that way. And then after Not World just War II, brutality, it was also superiority. Like everybody yes. else is inferior to us and it doesn't matter how you treat anybody else because they don't deserve to be... Uh, treated kindly i guess yeah like they are not humans they are subhuman so yeah absolutely so i think the book gives a lot of that but again why i hate it that they didn't put this or some scene of this in the movie about how this crew on the ship treated them because i think it it skews it a little bit because you did have 
officers in, and, and enlisted in the Japanese war. Same thing. We have stories like in the German army as well, where they weren't down for all this, right? They still looked at their enemy combatants as human beings and treated mm-hmm. them as such. And that's what this crew on this ship did. And I think it, it got left out probably not like erroneously, but I think it would have been decent. I don't know. I I'm on the, the mindset. I like a full and complete story. And I don't know if we got that leaving out the parts of the Japanese officers and enlisted that did treat them well, but well, whatever. Think about it. Think about it this way. The Japanese that they first encountered are the ones that are going to be more likely of being taken prisoner by the Americans. So it only behooved them to treat people kindly because if the same happened to them, they yeah. potentially had to deal with retribution. Yeah. Whereas the and they were prisoner also... war guards, yeah, they, they, they're the least likely. Yeah, they're like, they get here, they're fucked anyway. Um, But yeah, I think that's a good point. Absolutely. It also, when they talk about, they describe the um, Japanese fighter that they see when they get shot up on Mm -hmm. when they're at sea, right? Uh, When they're describing like, oh yeah, there's a fighter that came and shot us up. They were like, no, there's no way. There's no honor in that. What are you talking about? And they're like, "Uh, yeah, look at our raft. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they did. And they're like, fuck. So yeah, they're following a different code, you know, they're, they're, and I think it's a good way. And I think it shows that you're breaking war down to a human level where there are really fucking sadistic people that are going to do sadistic shit no matter what. And when you give them this type of power, they're going to run with it, but you still have people like this in war that are, listen, this fucking sucks. We're at war. Nobody wants to be here. Um, We have a part to play, obviously for our country. Like we want to win. But at the same time, I see you as another human being. So either way. But this is where we start the uh, the gauntlet of POW camps and interrogations and torture. I think for the sake of time, probably in the movie, they did consolidate uh, a lot of the camps because they get to the first camp, which is an, it starts with a K. That's where they were. Quadrilines. Yeah, quadrilines. They were in these little cells. Um, and then they were interrogated. There's some stuff that happens there. And then this is where um, they get sent to the next camp where uh, is Afuna is the first mm-hmm. like actual camp they go to. Uh, Which I wasn't believe... technically a POW yeah. camp because nobody was registered. These were the people that they wanted to hide from the rest of the world. Yeah. It was like a black site. Yes, exactly. So what we're seeing here is that Japan has POW camps, but then they have not POW camps because they're not, they, like Jackie said, they don't want to share what they're doing with the world. Because remember, Geneva Convention, we're supposed to abide by these laws, which clearly Japanese were like, fuck it. Which the rest of the world was too. (laughs) It said, in the book, it said that Japan signed it, but never ratified it. Mm Mm-hmm. They're like, we don't want to do this. <laughs> and then the one time they say that uh, uh, this isn't Geneva, this is Japan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hmm. It, it's just a fucking mess. So why we bring this up is because when they are being sent here, you know, the soldiers and officers, they have a certain expectation. Like, okay, I'm getting sent to POW camp. It's not going to be great, but, you know, at least have to, I'd be able to write home to my parents, you know, tell them I'm alive. I'm just a prisoner of war, et cetera, et cetera. But then, they quickly learn that that is not the case. That is not what's going to happen. And they are uh, on their way to hell. The first hell that they go to, Afuna, which is not an actual POW camp. It's just a black site, like Jackie said. We don't have the bird there. We have the quack. 
And this is also where um, Gaga is, right? At this first mm-hmm. site, the little duck that kind of keeps them all cheerful-ish. The quack is that crazy doctor we talked about earlier that's just beating people and he's also psychotic. Um, but overall, I think that the experience was not good by any means, but I also think they had no idea what they were in for after this. Like, I, that it was going to get a lot worse. Um, they do spend a lot of time here. I, I, I forget how long. He, it's several months that he's there, right? Mm-hmm. Before he gets transferred out. And this is where him and Phil were split up. Was yeah, going Phil to gets camper. sent to another camp uh, way before Louis does. Yeah. Yeah, he goes to like a mining. Yeah. Yeah. So Louis now gets sent to Omori Omori camp, which is a POW camp. But again, Japan was like, fuck it. (laughs) We don't care. Uh, So they're getting Red Cross rations and everything. But we learn that the Japanese guards are stealing it. They're sending it out. They're selling it like on this black market. The POWs are getting almost none of it. But this is where we meet the bird, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way it comes about in the movie is definitely a lot different than it is in the book um, because they kind of get there. I believe it's later and they're standing around um, and then the bird comes over and just starts like beating the shit out of Louie. He, he says some bullshit about uh, you are enemies of Japan. Uh, mm-hmm. You will be treated accordingly. Uh, but the, the thing is, I don't think he starts to single Louis out. Oh, no, that first one he does. He walks up yeah. to him and said, look at me, look at me. And Louis does. And then he boxes him over the head and says, why are you looking at me? Don't look me in the eye. I'm like, but you, you told him to. Because the bird knows exactly who he is and hates him for it. He's successful. He's an officer. He's been in the Olympics. Like, that's how he's viewing Louis, like everything that he wants to be, he's despising Louis for. Where in the movie, it kind of makes it seem like Louis just happens to make eye contact with him at the wrong time. And that's what sets mm-hmm. him off. But in the book, you learn that, no, the bird knows exactly who he is and who he's fucking gunning for. And he really does. He devotes all of his time and energy going after Louis, but he also Number doesn't, one you know, yeah, he doesn't spare the rest of them either. He's still fucking psychotic. And I think This is where the movie, I don't think, departs severely, but I think it starts to fall flat because it is a Cliff Notes expedited, abbreviated version of this story. So there's a lot that's getting left out about how psychotic this dude is and how brutal he is and how it's not just physical torture that he's doing to these POWs. It's emotional. It's it's um, psychological warfare that he's pulling on them where he's not just trying to break them down physically. He's trying to break them down spiritually. He wants them to not believe that they are human beings. And that's what he's doing. I think that's what really sets these POWs off. um, Because it's one thing to just have to deal with physical brutality day in and day out. It's, it's wearing and it's exhausting, but mentally, you know, you can get through it. Right. But now Mm -hmm. they are, he's breaking them spiritually, which is, I think what Louis says is probably the worst thing for him that was making it hard for him to survive. There's another departure from Mm -hmm. the book or from what actually happened into the movie is the scene where he orders in the movie, uh, all the prisoners have to punch Louis in the face. Mm -hmm. It was all the officers. He had the enlisted men come up and punch the officers in the face. It wasn't just Louis. 
It's also thieves too. It was they yeah. caught them because something they leave yeah, it was, out. It was in a the... ring of thieves, yeah. And then he um, singled out, I think, Louis, and then I maybe Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, because he was the commander, the barracks commander. Yeah. So he's like the the most ranking officer there. Yeah. So he says that these men are undisciplined because of you. This is your responsibility, yeah. which is like how yeah. the military works in general. Like. Mm-hmm. If you're wrong, your commander is wrong, right? Like, yeah. you fucked up, so they also fucked up. Uh, so there's a row of men that they bring out, and it's about 200 or so POWs. They have a punch them, and hard, because mm-hmm. what they don't show in the movie is that if they pulled their punch, they got beat, and then had to stand in line and also get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. So... I think it probably would have for this again, for the sake of time cinematically, they probably, it was just probably too much buildup to get there to understand like what was going on. I did love in the book though, how they describe this way that even though they're POWs and they can't fight anymore, they're like, no, we're still in this war. We're going to fucking sabotage anything we can get our hands on. We're going to steal the sake. That's what Jackie and I are drinking. Cheers to that. Mm -hmm. They're going to put holes in things. They're going to, sabotage engines and when they're working at the shipyard like they are just no fuck this they're like i'm gonna piss in your rice and i was loving every minute of it because to me this is the type of warfare where i'm like get it i'd rather see this this petty passive aggressive warfare than you know like seeing towns full of innocent people killed in a bombing raid but that's just me I, this is my type of warfare. I'm all for it. Um, so yes, the thieves, it's a lot of buildup to get to the thieves standing in line with the officers. So it's more dramatic just to make it Louie. And I think they, it's because they lost the race in the movie, but they have them. Oh no, no. It's after the, um, recording. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff. he to do the second one. Yeah. So in the first camp, they do the, they know he's an Olympian. So they want him to race and, he does. He races against like common people. He's like so emaciated that he he can't. And then I think in mm-hmm. one of the races he does one. He's like, no, fuck this. <laughs> I'm going for it. And then gets beat for it. Um, so they show a little bit about in that in the movie, but not a lot. And then where he gets beat down with all the punches is the big story here, though, which I don't think they really led on to in the movie, is that Louis Zamperini was being used as a propaganda machine. They that's what they Japan Japanese wanted. to use him for so he wasn't registered they didn't give his name they didn't want anyone to know he was there finally they're like we're gonna let you broadcast a message back to your family on this like the postman calls or something yeah because the the japanese knew that the americans had a timeline for somebody going missing and then if they Mm -hmm. still weren't found one year and one day after they went missing they would be declared dead and they wanted to wait until that point so that he could broadcast this message and the Japanese could paint it so that the Americans were seen as insensitive or uncaring, something like that. Uh, or even incompetent. Like, yeah, we're we're Japan and, and we care and we're taking care of him and we're better than you. Yeah, yeah. And also like your government's so stupid, they don't even know where their people are. They yeah. don't even know if they're alive. And they wanted to do this. So the first message they let him send out, they let him write it and they approved it. And he's like putting some stuff in there so his parents know it's actually him. Uh, but then the second, they're like, hey, how about this? And at the time, he's like at the recording uh, building and he's in this nice cafeteria. He's It's clean. He's eating food. You know, he's being treated well. Then they come back with the second script, which is really that 
Japan is so great for this magnanimous force. The Americans are stupid. Your government is terrible. You don't know where people are. And he's like, I can't say this. And like, why not? Like, cause it's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they go, well, those men over there. And he shows some other, in the movie, he just looks at them in the book. He actually does meet them firsthand, but it's a, it's a couple Americans and an Australian, I believe that mm-hmm. they get suckered into it. They're sending out propaganda stuff and they're, they're being able to live there sort of in luxury. But in the book, it describes how when Louis met them, that he could tell that they were visibly ashamed. Like mm-hmm. they couldn't even look him in the eye. Right. But in the movie, it makes them look like, oh, we're so happy over here just eating bonbons and shit. Uh, I, I I would have rather they showed the way the book describes it than in the movie because I don't... And even Louis didn't... He wasn't angry at them in the book. He was just like, I get it, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're beat down. You're worn out. You're exhausted. You're starving. Like, you just want to be treated like a human being. And if this is what you have to do, then so be it. Where I think in the movie it was more flippant, and they're like, "Oh, they're just traitors." Where no, these these men have been dehumanized to the point where they're like, "Please, I just want to eat. I'll say whatever you want on the radio." Because I think in their minds, nobody's going to believe this. Nobody's probably going to hear it. So I don't, I don't judge them either for that, like Louis said. No. Plus, pe- the people that were convincing them to do that were probably very, very good at that game. Yeah, and made it made it sound like it wasn't as bad as it ultimately ended up being. Yeah, and they probably got a lot of grief if they made it back when they came back. Whatever you know, people are gonna say, "Oh, you're a traitor." Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't. I don't think that's the case. It's again that very morally gray, nuanced area of what warfare is, and you know, it is what it is. But when he denies, when he declines to do that, refuses, he gets sent back to the camp. And then that's where the bird is like, thought we were the same, but I guess not. You're fucking weak. You don't listen. You don't obey. So everyone's going to punch you in the face now, which he does have the whole PW can't punch him in the face, but it's not just him in the, in what it really happened. It was a whole bunch of them. Um, so it's more dramatic. I get it in the movie, whatever, but just understand it was like eight of them that were standing there getting smacked around. Full on. And even at the end, remember, when you're reading about the medical, uh, what do you call it, like assessments of the POWs coming in, they're talking about how they're from the beatings and stuff, like the structure in their jaws were uh, different, you know, the way it was healing, like that mm-hmm. was different. Their teeth were all fucked up, um, not only from the beatings, but yeah, like the shit that was in their She even said like shattered teeth Yeah, from the grit and the food and the abuse and everything. So that happens, um, and then there's a lot of other stuff to happen. There's so much torture and brutality that's happening over the, about, I think it's about two years or so in all these different camps with him. Um, something that they're not mentioning in the movie is when we start to experience, like, the raids and the B-29s, right, that are mm-hmm. flying over. Uh, Super fortress. Yes, there was a policy or guidance that the Japanese government put out saying that is like the kill all um, mm-hmm. thing mechanism, whatever, where if they felt like a POW camp or a site was going to be invaded, the Americans were coming ashore, that they were to kill all the POWs because they could not risk, especially the American POWs being handed back. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for some reason, Louis is just 
really lucky because there's a couple times where they, I think they passed that threshold of what would have uh, sort of pressed that kill all button. Um, but it's happening at all these other sites where there's one site where like all these Korean POWs were killed and another site with Americans, um, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of POWs that were killed just because the Japanese were worried that the Americans were advancing. Um, but Louis remarkably, like miraculously just he doesn't get to experience it they're they're dreading it though and they show this they talk about in the movie a little bit um, i think fitzgerald where he overhears it he overhears the conversation saying that if we americans start winning that we're going to die and there's this conversation about like what do we root for then like Mm -hmm. of course we want the americans to win the war but it's almost like when they start winning we know we're going to die so it was in the movie, they, they mention it, but it sort of, I think it was a little downplayed. And in the book, it goes into such detail about how serious this was and how many people died because of this order. I think, I think one thing that might have saved a lot of people from having to get killed from that order was the, mm-hmm. the guards and the leadership at those particular camps were like Hitler delusional. Like, no, we can yeah. still win this. Yeah, that's a great point. Because they're like, no, 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 we're not, we're not giving up. No, 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 we, we're fine. So that's probably, yeah, that is really a saving grace there. Okay, so, you know, torture, torture, abuse, abuse, just absolute horrific stuff happening. And then we learn that the bird is being shipped off. In the movie, it says, I'm getting a promotion, so they're sending me somewhere else. That's not how it happens in the book. He does ultimately get a promotion. He becomes a sergeant, but that's later. What happens in the book is that there's a prince in Japan Mm -hmm that wants he likes to travel around and visit the pow camps he he wants and he's very adherent to the geneva yeah well he's also a red cross representative for japan yes yes and they do make a reference to him being a direct descendant of one of the original shoguns Mm -hmm. uh in japan and why this is important to understand is that when you talk about japanese history especially when you get to the the shogun level like honor and integrity is such a big part that it's it's in your blood. That is what you are. There's no way that you're getting around that, right? I mean, you have the seppuku if you if you're bringing dishonor to your family. So he is a direct descendant from one of these these shoguns. So I think that sort of lets you understand that he's all about honor. And if he's a Red Cross representative, he's adhering to the Geneva Convention. He wants to make sure that these camps are are being run properly you know that they're not going to bring dishonor to japan because that's what he cares Mm -hmm. about he visits obviously it's like if anyone sees the tours that they give in north korea you know it's a very very propaganda tour like everything's great (laughs) look how amazing we are it's like no well in in germany they did the same thing theresienstadt it was the um the tour concentration camp right yeah it's like this is not dachau this is so pretty yeah we don't even have ovens here They had them put on plays and and perform music and stuff like that for audiences. Exactly. And then as soon as somebody was too weak, they got sent to Auschwitz. Yeah. So the prince is visiting and then he wants to talk to some of the POWs. He wants to interview them himself. And there's this one soldier, I think his name is Bush, who he's like, fuck it. I'm telling this prince exactly what's going on. He tells him. Prince is like, what? Bird finds out, beats him. Prince comes back Mm -hmm. again. Bush is like, fuck, I don't care. I'm telling him again. Bird beats him again. I think this happened several times. So finally, the prince 
gets his way. You know, he's like, no, this has to stop. Like somebody needs to do something about this dude, meaning the bird. So their answer to this is like anything in the government where they're like, we're not going to fire him. We're just going to promote him out and move him on. Right. Mm. Uh, (laughs) So they move him to this other site. Um, I think it's another one of those black sites. It's up in the mountains somewhere. uh, And he leaves. So when the POWs find out that he's leaving, they're like, Oh my fucking God, this is amazing celebration, right? The next guy commander or not commander. Um, he is like the POW disciplinary dude that replaces him is they say he's not like a nice dude. He's still, you know, their overseer, but he's a honest and honorable man. And he follows Geneva conventions. He makes sure they have their rations um, and that they're not just being beat all the time. So, they're happy. They're like, we can we can make it to the end of the war like this. Until a couple of them get called up, the officers. And this is something in the movie, it makes it seem like there was a raid and some bombings and that they wanted to relocate the entire camp. And then they'd go to this other camp. Where in the book, it's really just a handful of them, right? It's like him, mm-hmm. Fitzgerald, Miller, I think. So these are officers because what they're doing is how the POW camps are set up is, you know, they have their officers and enlisted and there's different rules for them as per the Geneva Convention. And then it has to be certain structures in place. And the argument or the justification for the move was that we're low on officers at this other camp. Um, I want to bring over these officers because they, you know, they have a good history with being the barracks commander and whatever, whatever, whatever. So they, they move to the other camp and it's in the movie, it looks like the whole camp, whatever, let's go with it. They get to this new camp. It's a like a mining camp. The way they describe in the book is it's just gray and black and dismal. And it looks like hell. Um, Same thing in the movie show up visually. I think they did an amazing job portraying this, but they lined up. They're out there waiting to see this new camp. And then who comes out and Louis fucking passes out when he sees him, the bird. Mm -hmm. And it's like, are you this, his life plays out like a cinematic like I think his life feels like the adaptation of a movie of a suspenseful movie, because this is the kind of shit that happens in fiction, but it's real life for him shows up. They thought they were free of him. Nope. Here's the bird again. All right. So we're in this last camp. Um, This is where we get the, okay. So we're in the last camp and this is where we get the famous cover um, for the movie where he's holding the like wooden beam above his head because what's happening here is just more crazy torture, right? Just abuse. They're mining, they're covered in soot and there's these other scenes where it's just so dangerous, right? Uh, they're getting killed. Just, just working. I think one of the numbers that she puts in the book is that within a day they would have carried like four tons of coal Mm -hmm. back and forth like not at one obviously not at one time but just the amount that they're shoveling and carrying um there's a scene where louis gets pushed off one of the ramps the way he lands sort of like fucks up his leg i think it tears his um uh what do you call it the one of the tendons or something in his ankle yeah so he's can't really walk on it. They don't really show the healing process at this time in the movie. Cause it is like a, a month 
that he's kind of down for the count and he's begging for work so he can get full rations. I get it. Cinematic timeline, whatever. Um, but there's a scene where, and it's described the same way in the book as well, where the bird is just sort of losing his mind again. Uh, something that we didn't really talk about is the POWs sort of suspected that the bird was getting some sexual gratification out of this. Oh yeah. He was that much of a sadist. They would say that he just looked like he was, you know, satisfied Mm -hmm. after he'd go through one of these rants. So he's having one of those moments and he calls Louie over, tells him to pick up this pillar plank or whatever you want to call it. It's a six foot long, heavy piece of wood, right? Says, pick it up, hold it over your head. And then he tells, uh, one of the guards, if he drops it, you hit him. But in the movie, they say, if he drops it, shoot him. Mm -hmm. It's more dramatic. Get it. I have no qualms with it. So he's standing there and he does get hit at one point. Cause he starts, remember he's like, these guys have lost so much of their body weight from the being shipwrecked alone. Um, stranded at sea they said they lost like half their body weight and then in these camps they lost like another percentage they're like these six foot men walking around weighing 80 pounds like that's what we're talking about here right they they are they do look like what you would consider like a holocaust victim look like that is them Mm -hmm. as well so he's like supposed to hold this thing and this is where he talks about how he's like he's like i'm fucking done like he reached down inside of him and he just stared at the bird eye contact just fine i'm gonna hold it here and the whole camp's watching and i think they say it was about 37 minutes Mm -hmm. that he stood there with it above and he said he couldn't feel anything he didn't know what was going on he was kind of coming in and out of consciousness um but at this point the bird was just freaking out he lost it he's like how dare you you know and proceeds to beat the shit out of him again. And I think he also was beat unconscious again. So he's just standing, mm-hmm. laying there. I think the board hit him in the head too. Um, so that is pretty similar to the book. And that is, I think the last big epic uh, scene we get with Louis in the sense where he's just like, I fucking have had it. Like I'd rather just die, but I'm not going to let you break me moment mm-hmm. meaning the bird um then i think it gets a little expedited again in the movie where we now have the b-29s making more rounds and i think they finally find out that they have won the war but the japanese kept it from them i think it was august 15th that uh the war was declared, right? Yeah, the bombs were dropped then, on August 6th and 9th, and then it was yep. declared officially over. Um, but the, I don't think the peace treaty was signed until a little bit later. But I, there were some suspicions she wrote that they kept it from the POWs because they still wanted to carry out the kill all order. And they were just yes, waiting for that. August day. 22nd. Yeah, August 22nd was the a- absolute kill all mm-hmm. date. So that's what they were waiting for. Um, but this is the the scene in both the book and the movie that I don't really understand is where they say, "Hey, you know what? We're the war is over, so we're gonna let you bathe in the river." 
and then all of a sudden the the B-29s come out and and they're like, we won, we're free. It's symbolic and it's significant, but I will say this. I I don't know why the Japanese are like, go ahead, take a bath. Do you have any idea? I, unless drowning, if the shots didn't kill them, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, it was weird too because that's it makes you feel that way in the movie as well that this is it. They're putting them in the water and they're going to like just, you know, firing squad on them. In the book, you get that feeling too. Even the POWs are like, this is it. They're going to kill us. But then all of a sudden, like these B-29s come out and they're like, we're free. But what would have stopped them from just firing on them anyway? Because they didn't land. I well, I also feel like the, the movie was a little bit misleading also because in the book, she talks about how the B-29s were doing bombing raids over and over and over again yeah. for a long period of time, like before he even left Omari. Before he yeah. went to that final camp, they were seeing B-29s, but the movie almost made it seem like at the end, that was the first time they saw them. And that's how they knew. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also, they a lot of the um, veteran POWs in the camp didn't even know what a B-29 was. They'd never seen it before. Yeah, because they they'd know been about stuck it. It there for so long. They had to find out from the And they guys. also... Right, right. Because they didn't know what the capabilities were that it could make that flight from Saipan mm-hmm. there and, and back. Like... They so they couldn't even logistically understand how they were seeing the right mm-hmm. so, uh, so so yeah but it's very similar in the book and the movie how this ends where you know yay we're not POWs anymore but they're still there for a while I think it's a month almost yeah where the the bombers are coming out and they're dropping provisions and you know food and clothes and all this stuff for them there's some really great imagery uh some pictures in the book where overhead cameras see that they were getting so many pallets of stuff that they even started writing like hey we're good you don't need to drop anymore (laughs) just uh maybe just come get us (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh so i thought that was kind of funny um yeah, this is the picture here. If you're reading it, it's on page um, 319. And there's an image of... It's the na- 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 Nawatsu, Nawatsu compound is where they're at. And um, they're writing, you know, how many POWs they have there. Then there's a point where they write, like, we're good. Enough, thanks. Yeah. So that was- and then any news. <laughs> yeah, any news. Like, can you just, like, uh, maybe just uh, take us with you? Or, um, yeah, <laughs> just give us an update. So, but they're there, they're, they're eating, they're drinking, they've taken the rest of the sake. I'm going to drink to that. No. Woo, cheers. Uh, and then they start getting rescued. But finally, though, Fitzgerald, the, the barracks commander, so the most ranking officer there, he's like, I fucking had enough of this. He's like, he marched some of these guys down to the train station, like commandeered a train. They took it, I believe, to... Uh, one of the sites and then from there they were able to like fly home but Fitzgerald stayed mm-hmm. until the yeah because there were ones that were that couldn't physically walk out so they stayed until yeah. the aide came to the camp to treat those yep. people but he was like that true commander he's like mm-hmm. I'm not leaving till the rest of these men leave yep. so he stayed there with them for a while um, and then they, they start making the journeys back there's some really gruesome stuff in the book uh, it just it really broke my heart where they're talking about how 
the last flights coming out, some of them also crashed mm-hmm. with full of POWs trying to make their way back, which I was like, oh, my God, could you imagine? Like, you've survived all of that, and you fucking die in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, it's so sad. Um, Louis finally makes it home. He spent some time in Okinawa. He also spent some time in Hawaii in the hospital. It's just, you know, recovering. Uh, he flies into San Francisco and his brother goes AWOL from San Diego to go up and yeah. get him. He's like, that's it, I'm gone. I mean, if, if <laughs> the Navy pursued any kind of uh, military justice action against him, I, mm. I think that the, the Navy would not be seen in a very good light because maybe no. like, his brother. Maybe he got some extra duty yeah. or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> his, his brother just came back from the dead. Um, yeah. Maybe give him some leeway. Yeah, but this is the part where it sort of ends in the movie, right? They're free. We get the little snippets like he got married and then he ran at the Olympics and blah, blah, you know. There's just so much more to the story. And I feel like, I don't feel like we need to discuss it here. I think that if you are that interested, you really should go and read the book. Oh, or you know maybe watch that um that sequel yeah I, I haven't seen it. i don't know anything about it but if it gives sort of that him dealing with the ptsd because i for me it was emotional throughout the book but up until this point is where i just really started to feel the despair mm-hmm. because you're so happy that they're home and i think for jackie and i being you know military veterans we understand you know, what is expected from this, you know, we know there's got to be some PTSD, like, there's no way you're coming out of this, right? Unscathed. You may have survived, but you are not whole anymore after this type of ordeal. No, definitely not. Yeah, but in this book, when she starts to describe, and these are by their own accounts, right? This is not her editorializing this. This is what her interviews and research have come up with, and it is just heartbreaking there's a one scene where um phil and um, harris and louis they all meet up at this club like phil's married now he's louis with i think they were married at the mm-hmm. time harris like they're happy right they're at this club and they're, but the waitress brings out some food and on the plate is white rice and i think it's harris yeah. that loses his mind yep like just screaming, upset, frantic over white rice because that's it's bringing back so many memories um, of being in the camps. Just stuff like that. The flashbacks that are described and how the flashbacks really didn't start till later. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't immediate. It's when he was like trying to fully kind of situate himself into society that's when it started. Um, it, it's so sad. Yeah, and that, that's one thing that I didn't really appreciate about the, the movie, the end of the movie. It just glosses over all of that. Doesn't even go anywhere near it, actually. it They show him on his last day in the PW camp. Then the next thing you know, he's in his dress uniform greeting his family at the airfield. Uh, and then after that, it just goes into the little snippets. Like, he did run at the Olympics again. Um which is another thing. Is like everything is yeah. happy. He married yeah. Cynthia. They had kids, um, devoted his life to God. But, oh, by the way, there was 
a few years time where he was an absolute wreck. Yeah. And all of them too, because they're talking about, you know, his, his friends and the other survivors, like nobody was okay Mm -hmm. at all. And it was, yeah. Something else in the book is you really get the firsthand accounts and experience that the family was going through. Um, Obviously, yeah, when it doesn't I, when compare I got, to what... Yeah, when I got to the part uh, where it's talking about how all the mothers were writing to each other, mm-hmm. and then when they found out that Phil was alive, and all of the other mothers had hope, I was just like, oh god, I can't, I yeah. can't. It gives me, just, it gives me goosebumps just thinking yeah. about it. Like, it, it's... And then even just the way his sisters and his brother, how, like, Louis... He calls Louis in the book, Louis Samperini, when he gets home, like, he sees how this ordeal like the wear and tear physically on his family Mm -hmm. like his mother um they talk about in the book how the mother had like these rashes on her hands like these stress rashes Mm -hmm. her his sisters were losing weight his brother he said aged considerably like that amount of stress Mm -hmm. just on the family too like the book gives you the whole picture right it gives you family his ordeals his his counterparts or deals it even gives you point uh perspectives from the enemy as well it also gives you perspectives from the um crews and the like the woman that that intercepted the recording of him that was working at the war department mm-hmm. right uh, and then it, it it's giving you the aftermath and then when he meets his wife who he met on r&r like, she didn't even know him beforehand. Like, she knew nothing about this. She's getting it all after the fact. And she obviously loves him. They fall in love. But to have... She's, like, 19, 20 years old, and she's she's fallen in love with him. But to know that this is what she's putting up with, right? Not putting up with. That's a horrible way to say it. But having to deal with this level of trauma mm-hmm. and this PTSD... Um, I could just, I can't even imagine what that was like for her. I mean, she woke up pregnant one night with him strangling her. Yeah. Because he was having a flashback, you know? (laughs) All right. So let's go ahead and give our reviews. I read, so I'll go first. I give the book a four out of five. And it is because... I do agree with some of the reviews that some of the parts were a little long. Um, I don't think that anything was overly brutal or graphic. I think it's just, it is what it is. And if you can't handle the facts, then so be it. Um, It was emotional, but there were parts that just felt a little long and I caught myself skimming a little bit. Like I'll, I'll admit the Billy Graham part. I was like, cool. Revivals. Yay. But you know, that's it. Overall, I think this is an amazing book. Four out of five, really good review for me. Um, I I might, I, I don't think this is a book where I'd read the whole thing from start to finish again, but I might pick up parts of it and read again. Um, so really, really great book. I think Laura Hillenbrand, Hillenbrand is just glorious. An amazing writer and the amount of research and how meticulous is and how she put it together in this format. Amazing. The movie, I, I give it a six out of ten. I think it's a good synopsis. You're getting sort of like we, we keep joking about this, but I'm serious. You get the cliff notes abbreviated version of his story. And I think it touches on some of the strong points that they're trying to get across with the story. 
Um, but having read the book first and coming into it, it does make a lot of the portions fall flat for me where maybe if I watched the movie on its own, it would have been a little bit more emotional response, but it, it, the movie didn't get it out of me because I invested so much in the book. Okay, I will say for the movie, I would give it a 7 out of 10. So I'm not as harsh as Mel, but still not perfect. Uh, And what it boils down to is if I had just watched the movie and never read the book, it probably would have been an 8 or a 9. But after reading it, Mm -hmm. I had to bump my review down a little bit. Uh, I don't think that a movie is the right format for this story. I think it would have been much better suited to a mini series or a limited series. But I think that that because they would have been able to go into a lot more detail, uh, show a lot more of what happened uh, in the actual events, instead of kind of meshing stuff together. Uh, it would have been yeah. it would have been really difficult to watch. Really difficult. Yeah, because you really would get that sort of band of brothers, the Pacific, that type of feel from it which did make it kind of hard to watch at times yep for the book uh i'm just gonna say five out of five i thought it was amazing i i am not normally a non-fiction reader uh my mom and dad both love non-fiction although calling what my dad reads (laughs) non-fiction is a stretch uh, yeah. But I, I say Hill and Brand's writing style made it easy, and that is definitely not the right word to use when reading this book. But it made it. I, I have Palatable? to say that, that's that's the only word I can think of. Easy to get through. Mm. Yeah, because it is essentially a textbook, but it doesn't read like a textbook. No, <laughs> that's no. Mm. Uh, yeah. So those are my reviews. Cool. Yeah. So we're at that part yep. where we read, watch, so you don't have to DNF because we won't. Um, I will. I will say read. I do not think watching the movie is a terrible choice. Um, I'll put it this way: knowing that there's a young adult version of this book, if you are sensitive to essentially everything we just talked about, just consider that with a lot more detail and brutality. Uh, maybe try the young adult version of it. We haven't read it, so I, I don't know, but I would assume it's probably a little bit more, a little lighter than this. Mm-hmm. Um, or if if you want to know the story, like even just a glimpse of it, but without all of the detail, I think the movie is a good choice. But overall, I would say if you can stomach it, read the book. And I agree with Mel. I say read, definitely. Normally when I say you could do either, I I caveat it saying do one or the other, don't do both. But this is a case where I think you can do both. Uh, I prefer the book to the movie, uh, so I would definitely say read. But if you decide to do both, just understand going into the movie that you are going to miss a lot of the detail that was in the book. Yeah. So next week we have We Were Soldiers. It is our Vietnam week. Uh, I've already watched the movie. I'm getting ready to read it. I'm excited. 
I really do love that movie. I don't know what this book is going to do to that because I do enjoy that movie. So I'm excited, but also nervous. <laughs> you'll, you'll get through this, Mel. We will. We will. Um, like we said earlier in the episode, stay tuned for a few minutes because we're going to start off with our uh, DNF Soapbox series. Um, so hang on. Settle in for that. Uh, but until next week, bye. bye. Hey, everybody. Mel B and Jackie D here. We're starting this little new series called the DNF Soapbox, where we spend a bit extra time bitching about some of the adaptations we've broken down. You ready? Okay, let's go. <laughs> uh, about a year ago, Daily Mail published this article with Lauren Weisberger. She is the author of The Devil Wears Prada, the 2003, I believe, and then it was made into a film adaptation in 2006 with um, what Anne Hathaway, uh, the hell is her name? Meryl, Meryl Streep. Street. Emily yep. Blunt. Well, Emily Blunt, the amazing Emily Blunt. Anyway, so the movie got rave reviews. Everyone loved it. I think we actually, that was our first episode, and we said, watch it. Watch it over reading it. The movie did a much better job of maybe not telling Lauren's story because she was, I think this is supposed to be sort of semi-biographical or autobiographical, where she's talking about her time working at Vogue under Anna Wintour as a assistant and how brutal it was, even though she won't like own up to it in any of the interviews where she's like, yeah, Anna Wintour was a bitch. She wouldn't do it. So I don't really, I don't know. I don't, I don't really empathize with her. I think she, and she even admits that some of it is like <sighs> exaggerated. So I'm like, if you really felt that way, why don't you just own up to it and say that she was a bitch and she was crazy, but she won't. So I don't want to believe anything she says. Well, here's my thoughts on this. So the article is talking about how Anna Wintour and Andre, these are two of the people that Laura talks about in the book. You know, this is who they're supposed to be about. They highly criticized the book when it came out, but when the movie came out, they said it was really entertaining. So in this article, they're saying, isn't that sort of a double standard on, on their part? That why would they hate the book and hate the movie? Uh, my thoughts are, is because the movie is better. The movie yeah. tells a better story. Like we said, maybe not necessarily her story, but a better story. <clears throat> because the book, the, what the fuck is her name? Andy, is intolerable. Insufferable. The worst. Yeah, they're, they're really, none of the characters in the book are humanized at all everybody is just outlandish and crazy yeah and I, okay i don't think we should hate the book because we hate the character but i think you can appreciate a book with a character that's not likable and we can sit here and still enjoy the book and the story with a character with an unlikable character there's nothing wrong with that um, but I think the way Lauren presented Andy or herself is really just she's trying to be the victim in this story, but she's really not. And nobody can relate to her being a victim. So she's just kind of incompetent and bitchy and a complainer. And the mm -hmm. way she's 
portraying the characters around her as telling her to like suck it up bitch and work she wants to villainize them when in reality i think any normal working adult would be like stop like if you hate the job so much quit stop bitching and that's all the book is is her bitching and even in her own words exaggerating about these other people so i don't really think it's a double standard when the people she's criticizing in the book come out and say "Mm, yeah i don't really think this is good but the movie which tells a better story of like this you know small town girl coming to the big city and growing and dealing with sort of cutthroat professionals and these high execs like that's that's a better story i think so yeah it's more entertaining and it was funny i concur cool (laughs) 